science enthusiasts. Welcome to the Science Podcast. This is episode 20 of season one. I'm your host, Jason Zakowski. I teach high school chemistry. I'm a science nut. And Bunsen, the Twitter science dog, is our family doggo. We just love him so much. If you don't know who he is, give him a follow on social media. He's got empathy, he's got science, and he's got cuteness. His handle is BunsenBurnerBMD. If you've been coming back week after week to listen to the podcast, thank you so much. We can't believe how much it's grown. Every week it gets a little bit bigger, and I think every week it gets a little bit better, so thank you for your patronage. Speaking of patronage, we have a Patreon set up, where if you think the podcast is worth it, we're always looking for more support. Head to Patreon backslash BunsenBurner. It also helps us with some nerdy, geeky algorithms if you rate us on iTunes or you subscribe. Thanks for your help there. We've got such a fun show lined up today. We're going to be talking about some sleep science and science news. In dog science, I've got a dog personality test that some researchers thought up. It's going to be interesting to see where Bunsen stacks up. And our expert is named Kristen Lear, and she studies bats. And her enthusiasm for bats is far beyond even mine, and I love those little guys. I love bats. So I can't wait to share that with you. Hey, Bunsen. What do bats do for exercise? Aerobatics. Ah! <laughs> That's a baddie joke. Okay, on with the show. Because there's no time like science time. <laughs> this week in science news, we're going to talk about sleep. So sleep is something that everybody who works and everybody who has kids and really Everybody wishes that one point or another they could get more sleep. Personally, myself compared to Chris, I need much less sleep. I don't know if it's genetic, but I usually can get by perfectly fine with around six hours of sleep a day. I get a little bit more on weekends when I can sleep in a bit, but I've always been an early riser and I don't need to really go to bed that early either. I just need less sleep. Chris, on the other hand, definitely needs more sleep than me. She goes to bed earlier and she likes to sleep a little bit later. And there's some evidence to show that there's definitely sleep differences between people. Bunsen, <laughs> Bunsen has a giant morning sleep. Like he'll wake up, he's super happy. He likes to see everybody in the morning. But when like eight o'clock rolls around, he has this enormous sleep from about eight until noon or eight until one. Like he has a good three or four hour sleep in the morning. We call it his map. We call it his morning sleep where he's just super content to sleep the morning away. A new study that we're going to look at right now talks about some things that happen in sleep may be incredibly important for brain health. I teach high school kids, so I can tell you right now that high school kids and kids in general, kids at school, definitely need more sleep than they're getting. It could be the devices that we have that keep them up and they don't go to bed as early. But you know what? If I'm going to be honest and I think back to when I was in high school, there's other things that kept me up late at night, talking on the phone, playing video games. I was always kind of tired, but my friends in high school, some of them were exhausted and they would sleep during school. And it's the same thing for the kids I teach. They're tired. We start school at my my high school we, at like 8.25. And Adam's in uh, two bands at school. And Adam's in grade nine now. He goes to the same high school that I teach at. I don't teach him, but he goes to my same high school. He's in the French immersion side of it. And uh, 
three days a week, he has band in period zero. <laughs> we have a period zero at my school. And he's got to be there at 10 to 7. That's early. Other kids in sports are no stranger to getting up super early. And for the most part, he does okay. But he definitely has, when he's done school, he's way more tired than he used to be. And I'm finding getting up that early, I have to get up about an hour and a bit more early than I used to. It's having a drain on me. Sleep is important. And the study takes a look at why it is. So in the November 1st science, there was a study done on cerebral spinal fluid and how under MRI scans, it appears to flood the brain and remove harmful proteins including those that are implicated in Alzheimer's. So the study looked at 13 healthy people in an MRI scanner, They've, and they looked at their sleep in non-REM. So that's the type of slumber that takes up most of the night. Like REM, REM stands for rapid eye movement. And at the same time, they studied the different sorts of activities in the patient's heads. They had electrodes attached to them that collected data, like uh, nerve data, and the MRI looked at blood and how much energy was given to the nerve cells. And they used a special type of rapid MRI called fMRI, and that measures the movements of cerebral spinal fluid, or or CSF. So these fast fMRI scans, they revealed that fresh cerebral spinal fluid flowed like a pattern into the brain. And it was obvious. As soon as the researchers saw it using this fast MRI, it jumped out of them like right off the page. They're like, whoa, something interesting is happening here. People who are awake, and they test this against people who are awake, have very gentle waves of CSF stuff. In contrast, the researcher said, instead of like a little lapping wave, when you're awake, when you're asleep, this cerebral spinal fluid comes in like a tsunami. Like just plow, high velocity. So the pattern goes like this. A slow wave of nerve cells electrical activity peaks and that goes kind of like goes all across the brain. Then the levels of oxygen in the patient's blood falls. Um, That represents an outflow of blood. And finally, to take the place of that blood, the wave of the CSF rolls into the brain, like rolls in. And it's super elegant. They figured out like there's a pattern, X, Y, Z. It happens all the time in non-REM sleep. Now, they don't know if the neurological kind of like nerve firing and the low oxygen levels and and the the wave of the cerebral spinal fluid, if they're 100% related. So they're really studying this. But one of the things that they're, they're curious about and they have some theories is that waste products from the brain get sucked back out with all of this cerebral spinal fluid coming into the brain. It carries away this potentially damaging protein that's really sticky um, that accumulates in Alzheimer's disease. So their next step that they're really excited about is looking at people with Alzheimer's using this fMRI to see what happens in those patients. Maybe there is less cerebral spinal fluid that gets flooded into the brain when these Triggers happens, increased neural activities, uh, less oxygenated blood. Maybe people with Alzheimer's, there's some malfunction where that doesn't happen as much and these sticky byproduct proteins build up in the brain. I just think that's really cool. Sleep is so important to us. Everybody knows what happens when you don't get enough sleep. There's been times in my life where I haven't got enough sleep. Um, When our boys were really little, I, I I always tell all new parents when they have a newborn and they're like, oh, my baby sleeps right through the night. I'm like, okay, just you wait until they're like two or three. 
I was never more tired than when my boys were two or three because um, Adam especially was up every day at six, five thirty or six every day. He was up ready to go. And if you have a toddler, you know what I'm talking about? They don't just like, they don't just putz around. Like they are running, like they wake up, maybe they have a little bit of breakfast and they are running as fast as they can around the house. And you have to match them because they'll just get into things and wreck themselves. Um, other times has been, uh, Bunsen has been sick, uh, and he's been up all night. He's ha- he's had a couple nights like that, and you're just exhausted in the morning. Who knows other reasons? You're you're sick, um, or you've stayed up way too late binge watching Daredevil on Netflix. Uh, who I wonder who did that. <laughs> uh, but we've all had times in our life when we haven't got enough sleep. And if we don't get enough sleep, there could be buildup of the sticky protein because we don't have time for these. Uh, cerebral spinal fluids to wash in and, and clean our brain of this byproduct. Anyways, that's science news for this week. Pro tip, get more sleep. This week in dog science, I'm going to talk about an article that was in the recent Time magazine, um, How Dogs Think Inside the Canine Mind. And there was a really cool article kind of in the middle where you could take a dog personality test at this website and it puts your dog into nine different categories. And uh, we did this for Bunsen. So the nine different categories are the ace, the charmer, the socialite, the Einstein, the expert, the proto-dog, the renaissance dog, the maverick, and the stargazer. So a little bit about each of these, and, and maybe you can try and think about where your dog is. The ace is an accomplished problem solver with great communication skills. The ace says everything that makes dogs special and a little bit more beside. Only 10% of dogs fit the ace stereotype. They're good at reading and understanding social information and just as good at solving problems. One of the downsides to having an ace dog is they sometimes may be too smart for their own good. They get away with things they shouldn't. And they're good at manipulating their humans. They're also good escape artists. The next one's called the charmer. The charmers have exceptional social skills, meaning they can read human body language like a book. Charmers are mischievous. Charmers are not above using their owner's social information to get their way. Then we have the socialite. That's 22% of all dogs. They take a talent of being social to a whole new level. Although they rely less on independent problem solving than other dogs, They are not slouches themselves in the intelligence department. They use their humans or their pack to get what they want. Then we have the expert. That's only 7% of dogs. They're very good at cognitive abilities. Experts tend to be less reliant on humans than they are on other dogs. They're uh, in the social component though. They aren't, you know, they can't understand humans as well as other dog breeds. Then we have the Renaissance dog. The Renaissance dog has an average of being good at a bunch of different categories. Um, That's 12% of all dogs. There's the proto-dog. That's 15% of all dogs. Proto-dogs are akin to the first dogs. They're flexible at solving problems, but sufficient social skills to get humans to do what they want. Then we have the Einsteins. There's only 3% of dogs that are like Einsteins. They are the smartest of all the dogs. They're really good at problem solving, but they also have problems with uh, social skills. The Maverick is next. That's 7%. That's stri- they strike out by themselves and solve problems their own way. 
Um, they're independent. Uh, they don't like packs, and they're kind of solitary. Then we have the Stargazer. That's 8% of all dogs. They're considered to be a little bit of aloof, uh, but perhaps that's being misunderstood. They're not great in social situations. Um, they may have to, people might have to work harder to get the training with them. That's the Stargazer. Okay, so where did Bunsen fit? Well, after we did the tests, Bunsen fit in the Renaissance category. So he was good at a bunch of different categories. He's pretty social, but he can be aloof with people he doesn't know, uh, especially men. Um, he can, it can take him a little bit of time to warm up to strangers, especially in our house. But in other, other cases, he loves people. He really loves little kids too. He warms up to them like immediately. He loves little kids. He's pretty smart. He's really easy to train. He's really food motivated, but he's maybe not great at problem solving some of the more complex problem solving. Um, in one of the previous podcasts with Karina Newsom, who is a biologist, I was telling you a story about how, uh, I don't know who it was, maybe Adam trapped him in a bunch of chairs, like just put some chairs around him and then Bunsen couldn't get out. He, he just thought he was there forever. He's like, well, this is me now and I live in the chairs when he could have easily like just pushed through them or jumped over them or something. So he just kind of like, well, I'm, I'm stuck here now. So that's Bunsen. He's a Renaissance dog. Now you can find these tests at dognition.com. Now there is a price to do it. Uh, yeah, I'm not promoting the website anyway. We're not getting, we're not getting paid to promote. That's a website. I just saw it in the time magazine and I thought it would be really fun to see where Bunsen was. It seems like it's, they're gathering some good data. Um, you can give this as a gift to people. I thought that was really cool. You know, now that I think of it, I should contact them to see if we can get some Bunsen bucks our way for plugging their website. But anyways, it's, is it legit? Like what, who runs dognition.com? So dognition.com is run by uh, a bunch of scientists, trainers and vets and behaviorists to give people some insights on their pets. Dr. Brian Hare is one of the doctors. Um, then there's Dr. Richard Hawkins and Victoria Sil Silwell. Um, she's a host of It's Me or the Dog on TV, and there's some other vets that are on board. So it's pretty legit. It's fun. It doesn't, you know, just because your dog is one of these categories, they say, it doesn't define your dog. It's like one of those personality tests you'd take on BuzzFeed sometimes that my high school students love. Like, you know, which Avenger are you or which friend are you or which character on the Big Bang you are? You know, it doesn't define you, but some of the personality traits do. Uh, now that I'm saying this, I really took to heart what Pottermore said about which house I am. And I was clearly a Hufflepuff. So maybe I should take that with a grain of salt too. Anyways, all of these different things have you do different tests with your dogs and games with your dogs. And depending on how they do on that, that's how they score at Dognition. And that's dog science for this week. On the Science Podcast, in the Ask an Expert section, I'm so excited to have Kristen Lear, bat conservationist. How are you doing today, Kristen? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm so great. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk about bats. I was just uh, chatting before that we started recording, and uh, um, your profile and your website and, and the videos that you've done... It is so clear just how passionate you are about bats. So I'm so excited to discuss with you and get your opinion on some of that. So one of the first questions I have for you is like, where in the world are you calling us from? Where, where's your home base right now? So I'm right now in Athens, Georgia. So um, the heat and the humidity of Athens is where I'm coming from right now. 
Okay. Okay. All right. Gotcha. And and can you quickly explain, or maybe it's a long story. Uh, you can take as much time as you want. What was your science training that has led to you where you are today with being, you know, uh, pursuing your PhD in, in bat conservation? Yeah, so I actually got my start with bat conservation at a very young age. Um, I, as a Girl Scout, I grew up in Girl Scouts, um, and we would take night hikes during, you know, summer camp. And so I got to hear and see the bats flying around um, at night during those night hikes. And that really kind of piqued my interest in bats. And then in sixth grade, uh, for my Girl Scout Silver Award project, I built and put up bat houses in a local park in my hometown of Cincinnati, Ohio. So that was kind of my first informal introduction to bats. And um, since then, it's, it's just been a lifelong passion and love. Um, I got to study bats in college. Um, I went to Ohio Wesleyan University and was able to work as a field assistant for several summers with a PhD student studying uh, bats in Texas. And that was kind of when I fell in love with making a career out of working with bats and helping protect them. So when you were little, you, so I, like it's, it, for some people, they're terrified of bats. And, and not to be stereotypical, but like most, I, I have, I'll have a story to show you, share with you, but it's not necessarily girls that love bats. What, what drew you to them? Like what's, what's your connection to them? It's just so amazing that you know so much about them and you, you have such a, a love for them. Yeah. So I, um, I kind of have always rooted for the underdog. So I've Aww. always been drawn to things like you know, snakes and spiders and bats and, and things that other people um, often misunderstand and, and fear, even though they shouldn't. And so I think that really, you know, drew me to bats because people do misunderstand them. Um, and so I was like, if I can help change that attitude and, and help protect bats, that is something that I was really interested in. Ah, uh, that's that's great. So you're uh, you're you're rooting for the underdog. Do you do you watch sports and root for the underdog in sports too? I don't watch a lot of sports, but uh, some people always root for the underdog there too. Yeah, I do. So I actually I'm not a huge sports person either, but I remember when I was a kid, I would always first of all root for whichever team had the animal as the mascot. Ah, uh, um, so, but it was hard when there were two teams that were playing that were both animal mascots. Um, but yes, I would definitely root for the underdog and I still tend to do that. You, uh, you've done a ton of field research with bats, correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. So where, where have you studied bats in the world? Where, like, um, wh where do you go to study them? What, what, or maybe where do you go and what do you do when you study them? Yeah. So bats are really cool because, um, they're found all over the world. So there's bats on every continent except Antarctica. So you can really go anywhere and study them. And um, I've had opportunities, um, like I mentioned, in Texas, um, in the U.S. That was my first experience as an undergraduate. Um, and there we were basically catching the bats, um, tracking them around at night, trying to see where they were roosting, and also trying to figure out if they were eating pest insects, um, like the pecan nut case bearer moth, which is a huge pest for pecans. Um, so that was my first kind of research experience. And then after college, I went to Australia for a year where I wow. was, yeah, it was, Australia was amazing. Um, I was there for a little over a year in South Australia studying a critically endangered bat species. 
So that species, the southern bentwing bat, was, um, and it still is, on the verge of extinction. And so I was trying to figure out um, how their populations were doing. Um, I, I got to use some really cool equipment, like thermal imaging cameras, to count the bats um, coming out of the cave. And so that was a, a really fun time, too. Oh, so you're like a secret agent bat detector with that. Yeah, exactly. And actually, that's one of the best parts of being a bat biologist is you get to use some of this cool equipment and you feel really like, yeah, like a spy sometimes, I think. Yeah. So do you, you obviously had to probably catch bats, right? Like you had to catch them and tag them or, or did, were you completely hands off? Yeah. So it depends on what, you know, what project I was working on, but yes. Um, oh, okay. For... For some of the research, like the, the project in Texas, we were catching bats almost every night um, and, and tagging them with a little radio transmitter, basically, so we could track them around. Um, but my, my work in Australia, I didn't really do any catching since I was using the thermal cameras instead mm. of actually catching them. Um, and then the work I do now as a, a PhD student is in Mexico, and there, I also don't really catch the bats, but I use some really cool equipment, infrared cameras, um, to watch the bats and figure out their behavior and what they're doing. So how does one catch a bat? <laughs> like, yeah. how do you, maybe you don't want to share that with no, no, people. No, so no, it's a great, catch bats. I'm a just great like, can, I'll preface it. Can I tell you the, the story about bats that just, it happened yeah. actually a couple weeks ago? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Okay, so I'm a high school chemistry teacher, and my division had this big division kickoff. So mm -hmm. all of the teachers of our uh, public school district was in this my it was actually at my high school gymnasium, mm -hmm. and the superintendent was giving us like a rah rah message, and like what's the district's uh, you know plans and and pumping us up, and you guys are amazing, mm -hmm. and like halfway through the presentation, a bat started to fly around. Oh no. <laughs> And he lost it. Like nobody, it was, it was incredible how scared people were of this one bat mm -hmm. just flitting about. Um, people were running away. I def, we'll talk about bath, bat myths a little later. So I don't want to, mm -hmm. I don't want to <laughs> get to that just yet. So obviously you have to catch them without harming them. So how right. did you do that for science? Yeah. So for our studies, we were using what are called mist nets. And they're basically like giant hair nets um, made out of that black nylon fiber. Um, oh, okay. And so you put these big nets up. I mean, these are like 30 feet long, you know, 20 feet tall. So they're really big and you string them between two poles. And the bats, when they're flying at night, they can't really detect the nets very well. Um, you know, they, can't, they, they can see, bats are not blind, bats can see. Um, but when they're flying really fast, they, it's really easy to miss those mist nets. Um, and so, yeah, they get, they fly into the net and get tangled and then we take them out and then, you know, study them. So that's, that's kind of how we do and it. You, and you can grab them without, uh, like getting, you know, a bit or do you use gloves or are they like yeah. pretty docile once you grab them? Well, it depends on the species. Some, some species are just kind of sit there and they don't do anything. Um, oh. but other species are more bitey, um, which makes sense. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, imagine if a giant hand was grabbing you and trying to, you know, take you out of a net. Yeah. You would bite too. So it's just a defense mechanism. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, we actually, we do wear gloves, um, both to protect ourselves just from being bit and also to, 
protect the bats from any, you know, germs or any things we may have on, on our hands. And the little radio collar, do you, does it go on their leg? Like their little leg? So again, it depends on what we're doing, but the ones I would Oh, use, so cool. Yeah, you actually like glue them. You use surgical glue um, that people really? use to like cut or to um, close cuts. Um, and yeah, you just kind of glue that onto their back. And then, you know, after a week or so, <laughs> the, the glue kind of wears off and then the little transmitter falls off. So um, it doesn't really cause them any problems. But we can that's, track them that way. That's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, could you? W- I'm just like I'm just dumbstruck. That's so you glue it right on their little back. Like yeah, just we, like, we, we trim the hair. <laughs> yeah, we kind of give them a little haircut on their back between their shoulders, oh. just to trim their little hair so that it's not, um, you know, getting stuck in the hair. And then yeah, put it on, and it's just like you know us getting a band aid basically, um, and eventually comes off. That's so, that's so cool. Can you yeah. share like some of the, like what was, what data did you gather for the purpose of the, the little radio transmitter? Like what were, what was the data helping you solve? Yeah. So um, I was working with a PhD student who was looking at kind of several different things. And one of the things she was looking at was roosting of the bats in pecan orchards in Texas. Um, so she was looking at trying to figure out where the bats were sleeping during the day, um, you know, what roosts they were using. Um, So yeah, when we were catching the bats in Texas, uh, we were looking at kind of several different things, one of which was where the bats were roosting, so where they were sleeping during the day. Um, So we we would track them around the pecan orchards that we were working in um, to figure out where the bats were. And then also when we caught the bats, we would take uh, fecal samples or poop samples um, to figure out what insects the bats were eating and to figure out if they were eating some of the, the nasty pecan pests that the farmers you know, want to get rid of. And yeah, we found that they, they were eating some of those pest insects. So they, the bats are great to have around for the farmers um, to help them control those insect populations. Oh man, I, I love bats. They're they're so important for insect control. Uh, you, mm-hmm. Can you speak to that? Like, um, yeah, that's one of the, what's one of the main things people don't know about them, correct? Yeah. So I mean, bats are super important for um, for the environment and for us. So um, kind of, there's three main things that bats do for us. The first is the pest control. So they uh, most of the bat species in the world are insectivorous, which means they um, eat insects. And they eat a lot of those pest insects that destroy our agricultural crops and, you know, are pesky to us, like mosquitoes. Um, So with the bats around, they actually help farmers reduce their pesticide use on their farms because the bats are eating a lot of those pest insects. Um, So the farmers don't need to apply as much, you know, much pesticide. So they, they really help with our economy. They help save farmers a lot of money. Um, and they also, bats also are great pollinators of many, many different plants around the world. So without, uh, without bats, we wouldn't have things like mangoes, uh, bananas, even tequila. We wouldn't have without bat pollination. And then the third thing that bats do for us is they, they disperse seeds. So there's a lot of fruit eating bats that will eat, you know, a mango or eat some fruit and then either spit out the seeds or poop out the seeds. 
And then those seeds then grow into new plants. So bats help uh, regenerate tropical rainforests, for example. So they're, they're super, super important for us to have around. Okay. Well, you know, we're going to take a break from talking about bats. Um, one of the things we always ask our guests kind of in the middle, just a little bit of switch up, is about pets from their own life. Um, you're, you're very interested in bats. Uh, and, and one of the things that <laughs> in a lot of uh, professional settings is that people love their pets and they want to share stories about their pets. Mm-hmm. And maybe people aren't too receptive to that, depending on what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. But here in the podcast, everybody wants to hear a story about our experts' uh, pets in their life. Do you have one you could share with us? I do. Yeah. So I love bats, but I also love rats. Um, oh, so really? I, yeah. <laughs> coincidentally. Yeah. Um, so I grew up, well, starting in about sixth grade, I had uh, rats as pets. And they are the most amazing pets ever. They're basically like little dogs. Um, they all have their own personalities. Some are shy. Some are really outgoing. You can train them. Um, you can, you know, train, train them to do tricks and potty train them. I mean, they're just, they're amazing animals. Um, and so, yeah, I, I grew up with rats as pets and I remember I, in, I think it was sixth grade, I took my first two rats, uh, Oreo and Cookie to show and tell at my school. (laughs) (laughs) And so that was, uh, pretty fun because people were my, you know, my friends and everyone in, in school was kind of like, you're crazy for liking rats. Like, this is weird. But they actually like, once they saw the rats and, you know, once they saw Oreo and Cookie, they realize they're they're really cute, um, they're clean, and they're really fun pets. So, yeah, that was a, a, a fun time, and I I look forward to getting pet rats again um, once I settled down after grad school. That's so. Thank you so much for sharing. You're the first guest mm-hmm. on the Science Podcast to have pet rats, yeah. but I I know I know that they can be amazing pets. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Do do some of them have like are they could be like uh, like gerbils and hamsters? They can be a little bitey. They can. I mean, yeah. So again, each one has its own personality, and some can be more bitey bitey than others. But um, you know, you can train them and and work with them. But in general, in my experience, um, the rats that I've had have been a lot less um, you know bitey than other other animals like hamsters or uh, gerbils. So I think, or, or even cats. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. Cat, we, I grew up with cats also. And I, so I love all animals, dogs, cats. Um, but yeah, rats are just, they're really fun. They're a great pet. <laughs> uh, that's one of the things that our school was looking at getting, but they were worried about them escaping. Um, yeah. Uh, and it would have to be mice because it's oh. hard to believe if you check maps of the world and you type in which, where are there no rats? My province in Canada is rat free. Oh, so they so, don't want them. I see. Yeah. Yeah. So we, they are, there's a rat task force in Alberta that eradicates any rat in the wild. Like if oh, you wow. see one, they come and get rid of it. So wow. it's, it's really funny. There's some memes that came up this year. Um, and it was like, where are there no rats? And there's like this own, this little province in North America and people huh. are like, what's going on there? And that's where I live. So everybody in Alberta knows about it, but it, yeah, but I know they're, yeah. I know they can be amazing. They can be amazing pets. So yes. that's awesome. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Let's get back to, back to bats. Uh-huh. Um, okay. Now f- continuing with this story of the bat flitting about inside, uh, this gymnasium, 
I heard some people, and I'm swear I I swear I just about went crazy. They were shouting about this bat. It's going to get into our hair. Yeah. And I thought we were past this point as a society where that was no longer a thing. Yeah. Can you, as a bat expert, talk to us about some bat myths? What do people get wrong about bats? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a a great question because um, I get, working with bats, I get a lot of people telling me things like that about bats getting in your hair, for example. Um, But with that, um, that is a myth. Bats don't fly at you. They don't fly into your hair and get caught. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. So basically there's two kind of main reasons that bats might be near you and flying around you. Um, One is that they um, they're curious. So they're very, just like dogs and cats, they're curious animals. So, you know, if you're walking around at night in their kind of territory, they might just check you out, see what you are. Um, But they're not attacking you. They're just flying around, you know, looking at you. And then kind of the second reason they might be around you is because if you think about it, there's often a lot of insects around you, like mosquitoes or gnats that are bothering you. And so the bats are flying around trying to catch those insects around you. Um, so they actually, it's great to have them around because they can help control the, the mosquitoes that are trying to bother you. Um, so yeah, they're, they're, not, they're not attacking you. They're not getting in your hair. Um, so yeah, nothing to worry about there. Um, I think another really big myth, um, is that bats are blind because, Mm. you know, they're out at night. Um, people think they're blind, but they're not. So all bats have eyes just like we do. Um, and they see just fine, but, um, they also, a lot of bats also use echolocation to get around. So basically like sonar, um, using the echo echoes to find their way around, but they also do have eyes and they see just fine. Um, another myth is that bats are rodents or, you know, rats with flying with, uh, with wings that fly around. <laughs> um, that's a really common one I hear, but no, bats are not rodents. They're their own, um, order of mammals, their own group of mammals. And, um, so yeah, they're, they're mammals just like us. They're not birds. Um, they, they feed milk to their young. They have hair or fur. So yeah, they're mammals just like us. Um, and then also I think the last one that is a very common one is that, you know, all bats are vampires and they're going to suck your blood. Right? <laughs> it's a huge thing. And it's partly oh. perpetuated by movies and, you know, media, with all the vampire stuff and, you know, bats are not vampires. They don't turn into vampires or vice versa. Um, there are uh, three vampire bat species in the world. Um, none in the U.S., just mostly um, in Central and South America. Um, so there are vampire bat species that do feed on blood, but they don't target people. They, they feed mostly on, like, cattle um, and only a little bit of blood at a time. So they're not going to, you know, kill the cattle. Um, so three vampire bat species out of 1,400 species of bats around the world. <laughs> so all the rest of the 1,400 and actually six now uh, species of bats eat mostly insects. And then there's a lot of bats that also eat nectar and fruit and a few other things. So, um, so yeah, the majority of bats don't eat blood. I would imagine the numbers of people that get attacked by a bat is like almost negligible in North America. Exactly. Yeah. In North America, I mean, 
if a bat does get sick with you know something most likely it's going to not be flying around it's not going to be very active so um yes yeah, it's, it's not usually an issue um and with with the bat flying around in your auditorium you know it got stuck in there it sounds like it accidentally got into the yeah. building and it didn't want to be there you know they don't want to be flying around your house with people screaming um, so, you know, it's, it's just good to remain calm and try to help it get out um, by opening the doors and windows and things like that. Yeah, yeah. that was what I was. I was just stunned. I was just sitting there. I'm like, just let it fly. Like, it's just mm -hmm. it's not going to hurt anybody. It's not. No. It's just flying around like it's yeah. not, it got it was confused or yeah. stuck. So. And it's real sad, cause like, you know, a lot of there's a lot of incidences with birds, you know, getting into buildings. Um, but whenever a bird gets into a, a building and flies around, you know, the news article might read bird disrupts baseball game or basketball game. But when a, a bat gets in there, the headline says something like bat terrorizes state, oh. you know, and so it's the same thing. It's like the same. There's an animal in the in the stadium, but it's talked about in a more negative way with bats, um, which is part of trying to educate people about them that it's nothing to be afraid of. Yeah. Well, I don't know about you, but if you look at a bat and you look at a bird, I think, well, I don't want to make the bird people upset because I've had <laughs> bird people on, but, but yep. bats are super cute. I think they are freaking adorable. They, they are, are just the cutest things ever. They really are. And they, there's just so many different types of bats and uh, people actually call them sky puppies um, because, uh -huh. yeah, because oh. there's some bats that look like, like, uh, dogs or foxes they're called flying foxes and people yep yeah because yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're so cute oh uh, i'm gonna use that hashtag in yes. uh, when we when we air this podcast absolutely people, people follow <laughs> that, that. They, yeah they love them <laughs> i love that well thank you for sharing those myths about bats mm -hmm. absolutely. um especially from somebody who knows more than me yeah <laughs> um, people are like who's this guy telling us to calm down you're the bat expert and you're yep. telling people to calm down so that's great <laughs> mm -hmm. yep <laughs> <You're> okay <welcome. laughs> All right, pollinating bats. Mm -hmm. Can you explain a little bit about this? Uh, I know a tiny amount, but to the average person, they would be completely bamboozled by pollinating bats. And I know your studies in Mexico are about some of the struggles of these bats. Is that correct? Are they linked? Your, your... Yeah, yes. That's what I'm working on. Mm -hmm. Okay, perfect. Yep. So yeah, um, pollinating bats are are things that kind of get ignored because people, when they think about pollinators, they think about hummingbirds, um, butterflies and moths, things like that, that we can see during the day. Um, but at night when the sun goes down and we're in bed, the bats come out and there they pollinate plants. Um, so there's um, many species of bats that eat nectar from different flowers, different, you know, fruit plants, um, and when they're feeding on the nectar, they, they pollinate the plants. And so, like I mentioned, if we didn't have bats, we wouldn't have things like mangoes or chocolate or tequila. Um, and that's what I'm working with in Mexico is I work in the northeast part of Mexico with an endangered pollinating bat, the Mexican long-nosed bat. Um, and so these uh, bats are unfortunately losing their, their foraging habitat. So they're losing the plant species that they rely on for the nectar. Um, and so the work that I'm doing right now is to try to work with uh, communities in Northeast Mexico that use 
the food plants, so in this case agaves, um, and trying to work with the communities to plant more of these ag agaves and help feed the bats since they're endangered. So that's uh, kind of the work I'm doing now and it's, it's really fun to watch them feed on the agaves. Um, if anyone's in the southwest part of the U.S., like in Tucson, Arizona, for example, there's a lot of the, the bats come to the hummingbird feeders at night and they're really fun to watch. So if, if you're do they just out, have a crazy long tongue, like how do they, they do. like, yeah, I'm so, just looking at a picture of these little guys. I Googled the image while you were talking. They're freaking adorable. They've mm -hmm. got this little horn thing on their nose. Yeah. That's called a leaf. Oh my nose. God. They're, yeah. they're so adorable. Yeah. Okay. I'm so sorry. How do they, how do they feel? Feet? <laughs> I'm just like stunned by how adorable these things are. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're really cute. And, um, they're, they're some of my favorite bats, I think, because I have a huge sweet tooth also. I love, you know, sugar and candy and stuff. So, um, <laughs> I really relate to them that they really rely on nectar, which is pure sugar basically. Um, oh. yeah, they're, and they're really cool. Um, unfortunately, like I said, they are endangered, at least the one I'm working with. And so, it's really important that we provide more uh, food resources for them. Um, and and the main reason is there that like humans are encroaching on their territory or would like the, that area, the, whatever their natural food source is de mainly decreasing, but it's human caused. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, it's human and natural, you know, um, there's a lot of drought happening in some of these areas, which is um, affecting the agaves and the other food uh, plants. And then yes, definitely people. Um, so, clearing natural foraging habitat for agriculture or development things like that it's um yeah it's having an impact on the bats so we're, we're trying to counteract that oh yeah man i would hate to lose these little guys they're mm -hmm. so cute yeah Aww. they're really cute. <laughs> <laughs> so adorable if you're listening to this podcast people at home what you know i don't know if you can have two windows open where you're listening and on whatever you're listening to but you got a google search Mexico long-nosed bat. They are, they are precious. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah the Mexican long-nosed bats. And also the, um, there are several other species and they're, they're just adorable. And they have these really long tongues, um, <laughs> that, I mean, some of the bats that pollinate plants can have, um, have tongues that are up to their body length, um, in length. Oh, wow. And so it's, yeah, they're amazing. Um, and you can Google that too, and you'll see some cool bat tongue pictures. Yep. So they, is it like, I don't know, I'm, I don't, is it like a curled up in their mouth kind of thing? Or is they like, is it like an accordion? Yeah. Or how <laughs> That's a great they... question. So they actually have like a, in their chest, um, a kind of cavity that the, the tongue goes in when it's not in use. Yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of amazing that they can fly around with that, but they can. <laughs> <laughs> like a, a huge giant extendo straw just like exactly. hanging out inside their chest. That's crazy. Yep, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. So like Mexico is far away. I think we have some listeners in Mexico actually, but it's pretty far away for any Canadian listeners. And mm -hmm. I know your area is closer to Mexico where you are right now than us. Mm -hmm. How can people help bats where they are today? Like if, yeah. if I, I, they're amazing creatures and we need to help support them, How, what, what can we do? Yeah, it's a, a great question. So I think one of the kind of easiest things that anyone can do is to talk about bats and uh, to their friends and family and talk about how neat they are, um, how important they are for the environment and for us. I think the more positive PR that bats get, um, the better. And so I think that's a really easy thing anyone can do. 
And then also, um, if you're wanting to get kind of more involved with um, bat conservation, a really cool thing to do is putting up a bat house or a bat box. And this is basically you, you build a little house for the bats to live in and put it up in your yard or in a park or at your school. Um, and I've done a lot of this with uh, in Athens, Georgia, where I live now, um, and helping people around the country put up bat houses um, to help provide habitat for the bats. Um, and there's a lot of great resources online to learn about how to build one or to buy one, a good one. Um, you can check out Bat Conservation International has a lot of great information about bat houses. Um, and Bat Conservation and Management also has great information. You can also plant a night garden. So even if you're... Oh! Yeah, yeah. So even if you're in an area that doesn't have pollinating bats that feed on the flower nectar, you can still plant a night garden which has flowers that bloom at night. And those night blooming flowers will attract nocturnal insects that the bats will then feed on. So it's like its own little ecosystem and like a smorgasbord for the bats if you <laughs> flowers. Yeah, it's a it's kind of a fun way to have your own like little ecosystem in your yard. Um, and yeah, just talking about bats, um, donating to bat organizations is always another easy, easy way to help support you know, bat conservation and research. Um, and then also one last thing is you can adopt a bat quote unquote adopt. Um, you don't actually get a bat. Oh, that's adorable. Yeah. Obviously you're not going to get a bat cause you can't keep bats in captivity. No, um, <laughs> Aww, too bad. <laughs> um, but you get like, um, there's different organizations, but you would get, um, a certificate with information about, um, a species of bat, or in some cases, if it's, uh, like a rehabilitation center that helps rehabilitate bats. Um, then they actually give you information about the individual bat that you're helping sponsor with your money. Um, so it's, again, a really easy way to, to help. I did that as a class project when I was in second grade. I think we, we adopted a puffin. Um, I don't know if it was the World Wildlife Fund or somewhere, but yeah, we adopted a puffin. And so it was a really fun class project to do. Yeah. That's a great idea for uh, educators that are listening. I know there's a lot of teachers that listen to the science podcast. Yeah. So that's thank you for sharing that. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> uh, it's too bad you can't own a bat, but I mean, they're wild, yeah. they're wild creatures. They probably don't make great pets or they're not yeah. domestic. I don't know. No, I, you just shouldn't domestic. do it. I'm so, um, I know we put up uh, bat boxes and I could be going crazy, but um, I think they cut down the amount of insects. Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe your super fact relates to that. Uh, a super fact for people who are listening it's something we ask our experts that they know, and it just blows people's minds when they just, just like kind of just, they can't believe this thing that you know. And um, do you have a super fact you could share to us about bats? I do. And it actually does relate to the, your control of the insects. Um, so the bats that are eating insects can eat up to their body weight in insects every night. So Holy. I know, which is crazy. Um, and if you think about that, if you wanted to calculate how many quarter pounder hamburgers you would have to eat <laughs> to, to match that feat, say, so if you were about, if you were 150 pounds, you would have to eat 600 hamburgers every night to be like a bat. So, I mean, that's just to me, mind blowing how they can do that. Um, but yeah, they're pretty amazing. Yep. 
and and bats eat and, uh, mosquitoes, correct? Like there's like they that's one of the things they snack on. Is, yeah, so, is that correct? Yeah, mosquitoes, moths, uh, beetles, gnats, lots lots and lots of different insects they eat. Um, and yeah, so we we benefit by having those bats around. They help control those insect populations. Yeah. You know, maybe that's why we have less. Uh, maybe that's why we have less mos- like mm-hmm. uh, central Al- Canada and like uh, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and especially Manitoba. Mm-hmm. Uh, during the summer, we sometimes have horrendous mosquitoes. Like Manitoba, yeah, man, it's, it's like I was. We had a mosquito expert on, and I was telling her so a little bit of Canadian <laughs> culture in Winnipeg. In in Winnipeg in in Manitoba, there's a there's a statue of a, a giant mosquito called Jaws, the giant mosquito. Oh wow! That's as big as a big as a, a a car, and it takes away kids at night, and it's just this <laughs> funny thing because their mosquitoes are just so bad. Yeah, in, I've heard I've heard, heard horror stories about about that. Oh, oh you have? I oh, have. Okay, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, we just need. I, Instead of DEET, maybe everybody just needs to put up like a whole bunch of bat boxes. Exactly. And, and attract yeah. bats. Yeah. Bring them, bring them to your yard. Yep. <laughs> yeah. It's better, better than DEET and they're, they're freaking adorable and mm-hmm. it's, they're just good. They're yep. just good guys. Exactly. Those, those bats. And we actually, um, <laughs> one of the cool things that I've been learning about more recently is um, we actually use and like study bats and their, their lives to figure out how we can use, um, that information for medicine, for example, for how we can live longer. Um, so, for example, the vampire bats that do, you know, eat blood, they actually have a, um, a compound in their blood that prevents coagulation of the blood. So it prevents the blood from clotting. And they've actually created a drug called Draculin. Um, that is, yeah, <laughs> great, what? Right? Yeah, what? It's, it's Draculin? Draculin. Mm-hmm, after Dracula, obviously. Um, but it, they're using it or they're starting to look into using it for treating strokes, um, who, people who have had strokes. Oh. Yeah. So we, um, without the bats, we wouldn't, you know, have this, this information to be able to help our medicine and our, um, ourselves. Um, and bats can live really long lives. So there's some bats that are, even though they're really tiny, they, they're about the size of a, a mouse or a, a small rat. Um, they can live up to 40 years or longer in the wild, which is crazy long wow. for an animal of that That's size. A... Yeah. Right. Cause isn't it the small, right. The... Isn't it, there's some, there's a relationship between the amount of heartbeats and the length of an animal's exactly. life. Typically, um, the smaller animals have higher metabolisms and they live shorter lives, but there are many bat species that don't do that. They actually live very, very long lives without getting sick. Um, so there's a lot of research now going into how do they do that? Um, and can we apply that information to help us live longer and healthier lives? Um, yeah. So, so bats are just fascinating. Hey, can I, I just thought of a question. Can I ask it to you real quick? I know you're busy. Mm -hmm. No, Okay. I, I was just thinking of it. These bats are so cool. Where, okay. Where on the evolutionary thing (laughs) like where 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 did bats like where are they yeah on that on that tree one thing i do know that it's fine to publicize is um the humans so people and bats have the same bones in their arm and their hands they have the exact same uh bone structure and so bats actually have really really elongated fingers 
which mm -hmm. form their wings. So bats basically fly with their hands, which is kind of cool. But they have the same bones as us. I love that. I love. I, I show that in uh, one of my classes in Science 20. Uh, it's an Al Alberta curriculum class. It's a really fun class. It's like for kids that aren't specializing in uh -huh. chemistry, biology, or physics. Mm -hmm. And uh, part of that is in the biology section, we look at different structures. And the kids yeah. just are – it just blows their mind that the bat hand – Right. Like their wing is like it's, – it's like freaking the same as our hand. I just find it that is. that's so cool, isn't it? It is. I love it. It's like if we had like six foot uh, fingers, you know, or five foot fingers, <laughs> that'd be crazy. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, before we get to the end, mm -hmm. I have I have one question that'd be really easy for you to answer, maybe yes. really hard. What is your favorite bat? What's your favorite bat species? You know, yeah, I get asked that a lot, and it it does change sometimes. But I think right now my favorite bat is the Mexican long nosed bat, um, the one I'm currently working with. Because okay. for two reasons, one is that, um, like I said, I have a huge, you know, sweet tooth, and they are nectar feeders, so they I relate very much to them in that respect. But also, they're um, when they feed on the flowers, they're not very graceful sometimes. Um, they're kind of clumsy, and I tend to be clumsy also. <laughs> um, so again, I just really relate to them. I feel like they're, yeah, I can understand them. <laughs> This is, they look like a little goofy, happy sucker suck or they sugar do. suckers. They like, really do. They aw. have such cute faces. Um, another <laughs> bat that I really do love is the spotted bat, which is found in the U.S. Um, and it's a really cool bat because it kind of looks like a cow. Um, it's black and white and has black and white spots. Um, and they have these huge ears that they use to hunt things like scorpions from the ground. Uh, what? They eat yeah, scorpions? scorpions. So... They, they like basically pounce, they listen with their big ears and then pounce on the, you know, the insects and the bugs on the ground. <laughs> yeah, they're really cool. Um, so yeah, if you Google spotted bat, you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. They're really neat. Oh, I'm, as soon as I'm done talking to you, I'm Googling a whole bunch of bats. Yeah. I'm going to tell you that yep. right now. <laughs> what I haven't even had a chance to ask you, you're, uh, we're kind of at the end and, and you, you do some stuff for National Geographic. Can you talk about that real quick just to... Yeah. Like I know I, one of your videos, you, you have this like impassioned talk yep. uh, for National Geographic. And I know, I know you do other stuff besides just that video on your website. Yeah. So I, um, I received a grant from National Geographic a couple years ago to help fund my, uh, my current research in Mexico. And so as, as a recipient of that grant, I'm a, a National Geographic explorer um, and part of the, the family of National Geographic. And so I've had some really great opportunities to, to talk to people about bats through uh, the society. Um, and it's just been a, a really great opportunity to kind of reach a wider audience um, to talk about bats. So I, I really, really enjoyed um, being part of all that. Yeah. And I, oh, I, that's so, yeah, that's I, so cool. Yeah. I love doing outreach and education. Um, it's, it, it's really my passion and, and what makes me tick. So I, if I can talk to people about bats all day, every day, that would be my, you know, best life ever. <laughs> it comes across in your, uh, like some of your pictures on social media with kids. Yeah. Like, uh, you're just, you just, you're, you're, you're just this yep. glowing picture of information and the kid's eyes are just like lit up and it's just, <laughs> it's so inspiring because that's what I got as an educator myself, you know, you have a hook in with the kids mm -hmm. and. 
And I can see that in the, the, the still photos of you talking to kids. Like you've, you're converting every every one of those kids has been converted to a bat lover I'm talking to you. Yeah, I hope so. That's that's my dream. Oh, that's great. Well, I'm I'm so glad you said yes to being on the podcast. Yep. Um, and sadly, we're at the end. I know you're you're busy, and I, the time time talking to us is precious. Where can people find you on social media? Yeah, so I am um, on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, on Twitter, I'm bats for life. So <laughs> I love it. Yeah, bats for f o r like actually four and then life, and then on Instagram, I'm bats for life underscore Kristen. Um, somebody already had bats for life on Instagram, and they only have like one post. I'm uh, bitter. <laughs> Oh, I know, right? you know, there's a, there's somebody got uh Bunsen burner oh, um, yeah. on Twitter yep. or on, sorry, on, uh, on Instagram. So that we, we are, that's why he's Bunsen burner, BMD, Bernice mountain dog. Oh, so but that makes sense. Yeah. I feel your pain. Right? I feel your pain. No. <laughs> no, it's all good. Whoever gets there first, I guess. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, yep. you, you talked about some organizations you're, uh, that maybe people could also get involved with and we can post the links. Oh, uh, on on the on the podcast is there anything else or any other organization you'd like to tell people about before we close yeah so um i mentioned bat conservation international and also bat conservation and management are two great resources if you're interested in you know putting up a bat house or learning more about bats and helping bats um there's also another a handful of others um, the Luby Bat Conservancy is in Florida, and they have, um, again, really great educational resources. Bat World Sanctuary is one of the ones that I mentioned that does the Adopt-A-Bat program, and they are a rehabilitation center, so they do a lot of great work with rehabilitating bats. Um, and then Habitat for Bats also is a local Georgia company where I work, and they make bat houses and kits to make your own bat house, um, so... Definitely check them out if you're interested in that. Those sound like great organizations. Yeah, they are. They're all amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you again for being a guest on the Science Podcast. I have a million bat questions. I could talk to you yes. all day about bats, but uh, you, <laughs> you don't too. have time. <laughs> I know. Uh, well, I, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> I hope some people. I hope some people check you out on mm-hmm. on Twitter, and then uh, f- find a couple of your videos. It's just. You just have so much passion for bats. It inspires every. It inspired me, and just uh, to think more about bats yeah. too. Just in talking to you and and listening to your talk. So, yeah. anyways, thank okay. you again for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. It was great. We'll make sure we get uh, hashtag Sky Puppy yeah, uh, trending. Definitely. <laughs> you take care, Kristen. Thank, thank you again. You too. Yep. It's time for woo or wow. In this section, I'll be reading three statements. Two of them will be fake, they will be woo, one of them will be true, it's wow. And this week's theme is all about daylight savings time. So daylight savings this week, we got an extra hour of sleep, which was amazing. We got an extra hour of sleep on Sunday. Adam was busy with the band concert thing. Both Chris and I are being being teachers, we are busy as well. So having that extra hour of sleep is pretty good. Bunsen, of course, doesn't understand daylight savings time, so he didn't understand that we should get an extra hour of sleep. So he was ready to go at his normal time, which is 6 o'clock in the morning. But because of daylight savings time, that was 5 o'clock in the morning. So I got up with him and took him outside and gave him some breakfast and then went back to sleep. And then we had an extra bit of time to cuddle with him. I think I made a post on Twitter about that. It was really cute. But 
Let's look at some of the things that could happen because of daylight savings time. Here's the first statement. The first use of daylight savings time was by Austria and the Germans in World War I. Here's the second statement. Daylight savings time in the spring causes people to lose up to two and a half hours of extra sleep because of the change of your internal sleep cycle. And here's the third statement. Despite being annoying, there are not that many very serious health risks associated with the change of time by one hour. Okay, let's recap. Statement number one, the first country to use daylight savings time was Austria and Germany during World War I. The second statement, after the loss of an hour in the spring, people lose up to two and a half hours of sleep instead of one. The third statement, there are not that many health risks associated with the loss or the gain of a single hour of sleep. Which one is true? Which one is woo? Okay, let's take a look at the first statement, which is a woo, and that is the country statement. Well, most people, most people think that daylight savings time started during World War I as a way for Austria and Germany to conserve power. The first country to observe daylight savings time was actually Canada in 1908 in Thunder Bay, Ontario. But even that fact is a little contentious. 1908 seems to be the year that daylight savings time started as a way to conserve energy in Ontario, Canada. Um, but different sources say it's a little bit later. Being a Canadian, I'll trust my Canadian sources. A little bit of bias there. That leaves two statements left, one statement about health concerns and the other statement about sleep loss. The fake statement, the woo statement is the health concerns one. No matter where you look and no matter what you read about daylight savings time, there are health concerns abound. One of the main ones is a change in the risk to heart disease. So people who are already susceptible have an increased risk of having some kind of like um, complication from heart disease. There are more car crashes during the two weeks after daylight savings time. And those effects linger sometimes for months. That means the true statement is the loss of two and a half hours. So when people lose an hour or gain an hour, some folks are adversely affected by that change. Up to two and a half hours less sleep after the time change. So for some people, they think they have an extra hour, so they stay up an extra hour later, and that messes them up when we have daylight savings time and fall back in you know the autumn or like the November time. And some people, when we spring ahead, can't get back in a rhythm for almost six months. Some people are affected until the next time that the time falls back again. And the average amount of time that's lost is around two hours, but some people can lose up to two and a half hours um, for weeks and weeks after the time change. So why is daylight savings a thing? That's a great question. There's many pros to not doing it, and there's tons of cons that are caused by rolling our clocks ahead and back an hour. In fact, governments in Canada at the provincial level, right, Canada has provinces, um, Saskatchewan, for example, the province to our east, and that's like the breadbasket of Canada. It's like crazy flat there. <laughs> it's so flat in Saskatchewan. You can drive and drive and drive and not even see hell for like 
hours. Sorry, folks from Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan is beautiful. But anyways, Saskatchewan, a couple, you know, a couple years ago said, yeah, we're not doing daylight savings time anymore. And they just don't. They just don't observe daylight savings time. They don't roll their clocks ahead or roll their clocks back. And British Columbia to our west, our westernmost province, British Columbia is our mountainous province and it, it's on the Pacific Ocean, the, the west side of it. They are thinking about scrapping daylight savings time. And that's going to put our province in the middle, kind of in a really wacky spot if we have two provinces on either side of us not changing because of daylight savings time. I think if BC changes, Alberta will change as well to just not observing daylight savings time. It really doesn't make sense anymore scientifically, economically, or even just like from a practical standpoint. So that's Wow for this week, Daylight Savings Time Edition. Okay, it's story time with me, Adam. So this week, instead of doing the mailbag, we are doing story time. Next week, we'll do mailbag. It's a little cycle of story time, funny stories, or something that's happened within the week. Okay, so let's start this off with a story about what Bunsen does with his, you know, like treat container, his... um, Similar to a Kong. Similar to a Kong, yes. So you put treats in it, and then, yeah, he tries to get them. But he's not like a regular dog who sticks their tongue in the hole and tries to get the treats, right? No. He is incredibly smart and realized that he gets more treats if he just picks it up and slams it on the ground, making the treats spill out of it. Now, this would be easier if the treats were smaller, you know, like stuff like that. So he's over within five seconds, right? He's not super determined on getting treats, but what my mom does is she, she grabs her long finger claw nails and pokes the treats so then they become smaller, you know, smaller sizes. And so then he can bust them out easier. Yeah, because once they're in the treat and they don't come out of the, or I'm sorry, once they're in the Kong, the off-brand Kong, then um, he can't get them out. And then he just doesn't try unlike our retriever who was um relentless she would be like there's a treat there's a treat there's a treat i know there's a treat and she would just um be all licky sticky until she got it he just is like meh anyway he always likes it when he flings it and there's the off chance that a treat will fly out it keeps him interested okay dad do you have any funny stories or any stories that happened during the week um, sure. So it was Halloween last week. So when this podcast comes out, that it would have been one week ago for Halloween. And uh, ev- because our family is, we're pretty nerdy and we do, we do cosplay at Comic-Cons. Bunsen's part of our family, so he's part of the dress-up. You've probably seen some of his funny costumes on, on social media. So we made um, a Ghostbuster costume for him. But the problem is, is he's so big, Bunsen is so big, he doesn't fit dog costumes. Like, the only dog costumes that fit Bernice Mountain Dogs and St. Bernard's and Newfoundlanders are, uh, they're really boring costumes. So, what I've done is he just wears human costumes that I modify. <laughs> so, he, his Ghostbusters costume was an adult Ghostbusters costume that I just cut a hole in the butt for his tail to fit out of. And then we just kind of like stuff him in there. And then we had to roll his sleeves up and pin them. 
Anyways, the costume turned out really cute. You probably saw pictures of it if you follow Bunsen. And then we were out trick-or-treating, and a lot of people saw Bunsen with his cute costume and thought he was really adorable. Though not everybody knows who Ghostbusters are. Um, they thought he was cute in his costume. So that's the Bunsen story. Actually, he got a treat from a T-Rex Yeah. at a house. We went to a house. There was one of those inflatable T-Rex costume people that was handing out treats. And they gave him a they gave him a dog treat, this massive dog bone that he ate in the car for like forty five minutes. This hard to chew dog bone thing. Yeah, he wasn't even scared of the T Rex. He went right up there and he got his treat, probably because they had treats. But that's my story for Bunsen. I don't know if you can hear the off brand Kong going ticka 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 on the floor, but he's throwing it right now. <laughs> there it goes again. He's just pitching it on the floor. <laughs> so, Mom, do you have any stories? Uh, yeah. So, my story comes from today. And as you listen to this podcast, you'll hear um, Jason talking about the time change and how he took Bunsen out this morning when it was atypically early because Bunsen's clock isn't on Daylight Savings Time's clock. Jason was playing a video game. Um, he's played Stardew Valley. Anyway, he was playing it, and then Bunsen was like, Lim! 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 He was making his sound like maybe he had to go outside. And Jason said, Buddy, you've already been out. And I looked at him, and he looked at me, and he was like, Lim! 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 And he just makes his funny dog noises. And usually he talks to us when he is in toddler time, which is in the evening, not in the morning. Uh, And... I said, do you have to go outside? Even though he had already been outside. And he jumped up and bit his lip. And that tends to mean yes as well. Anyway, I took him outside and he foiled me. Uh, He did not have to go outside. He did not do anything except walk around and have the wind and the snow floof in his hair. (laughs) And then he said, oh, he didn't say. He, and then he peed Uh, a minute amount and then I said okay it's time to go inside and he really didn't want to come inside so that's my Bunsen story for today he really wanted to be out in the cold and the snow because that's where he loves to be yeah when it snows he just loves being outside he loves being in the snow it's adorable (laughs) um actually right now he reeks um as well because he was outside in the snow and um he was on a walk and he ran ahead of Jason through the hills and um, came back uh, reeking like rolled in uh, garbage. I think and it's coyote poop. It might be coyote poop and it is rank. He needs a bath. All right. So that has been story time with me, Adam. If you want a story to get featured next week, ask us on the mailbag or something like, you know, vote on the poll on Twitter that we usually do. I always like answering your questions. Let's do that. See you next time. And we've come to the end of the podcast. Thanks again so much for listening. We're going to give a quick shout out to our patrons from Patreon who are our top tiers. We couldn't do what we do without their support. We have Andrea Persons, Liz Button, Ben Rathert, Bianca Hyde, Chris Hemhold, Elizabeth Bourgeois, Karen Beth St. George, Kathleen Zucher, Marilyn McNally, and Carmen Preciado. Thank you so much for your support, folks. If you want a shout-out, take a look at Bunsen's Patreon. Our two top tiers get a shout-out on the podcast.
podcast. Thank you also to our expert guest, Kristen Lear, who gave time to talk about bats, a.k.a. sky puppies. They're adorable. And also, we're going to give a quick shout-out to Tailblazers, our in-town pet food supplier. We went in asking about a chew for Bunsen because the last one he ate, it gave him a you know, pretty sick stomach. Chris was talking about it, and they lined us up with this awesome chew that he likes. So far, so good. No upset stomach and one happy doggo. If you're in central Alberta, check out Tailblazers. On the podcast next week, we have a chemist that we're going to be talking to. Her name is Christine K, or Chemistry Kate. She is so upbeat. I can't wait to share the uh, conversation with you. But you're going to have to tune in next week for that. So let's close with Bunsen's motto for science, empathy, and cuteness. Woo!